Hey y'all, I'm Casey Bell of the Google Teacher Tribe podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual hosts. Make sure you check out all the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com and get ready because the learning begins in three, two, one. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. I'm your host Greg Goins and my special guest today is Alfie Cohn, a best-selling author and speaker who specializes in human behavior, education, and parenting. As a highly respected thought leader on education, Alfie Cohn is the author of 14 books and has been featured on hundreds of TV and radio programs including the Today Show and two appearances on Oprah. His views on education have been debated around the world as he's been an outspoken critic against the use of letter grades, homework, standardized testing, and competition between students in our schools. The chance to talk with Alfie Cohn for this episode was one of the highlights of my professional career as he challenged my own personal thinking and gave me new perspective on just how entrenched we've become in protecting the status quo in education. While you may not agree with everything you hear in this episode, I do hope that you keep an open mind and appreciate Alfie Cohn's courage and passion to reimagine schools. If you like this episode, be sure to check us out on Twitter and use the Reimagine Schools hashtag. You can also join our new Facebook group. Just search for us at Reimagine Schools Podcast Community. And as always, you can find us on the web at reimagineschools.net, your one-stop shop to listen to all Reimagine Schools podcast episodes. So kick back and turn up the volume. I think you're gonna find this episode both fascinating and inspiring as I welcome in Alfie Cohn. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagine Schools podcast. My special guest today is the author of 14 books on education, parenting and human behavior time magazine described him as perhaps the country's most outspoken critic of education's fixation on grades and test scores it's a tremendous honor to welcome to the reimagined schools podcast mr alfie Cohn. how are you sir doing fine thank you i'm a big fan of your work and uh, you've been in the game for a long time as one of the world's top thought leaders on education You've produced some fascinating research uh, on a wide variety of topics related to, to schooling and education, along with parenting. Um, what is it that continues to drive you or motivate you to think about how we can create better schools for kids? The urgency of that agenda. Uh, what's the alternative? Uh, we don't seem to be making progress in many areas, but uh, the stakes are just too high to sit back and do nothing or to allow ourselves to be swept along with the tide of traditionalism that has ill-served our kids for so many years. And, you know, I, I want to take you back. Uh, it's almost been 20 years now since you um, released the book in 1999, The Schools Our Children Deserve. So if you think about writing that book and you think about where we're at today, kind of take me through the good, the bad, and the ugly. Where are we at 
How did we get here, and where do we have to go? Uh, well, perhaps I should step back and give those of your listeners who are unfamiliar with that book or my work more generally a sense of what my perspective is in evaluating uh, the direction in which schools seem to be moving. Um, that book is a comparison of what could be called, for lack of better terms, uh, traditional and more progressive or student-centered approaches to instruction, as well as being a critique of the top-down corporate-style test-driven um, approach to to school reform that emphasizes a standardized set of standards and standardized testing as well. Um, I make an argument drawing on experience with real classrooms as well as um, scores of studies for the need to move beyond a curriculum and pedagogy that's about stuffing kids with a bunch of facts that they're soon to forget anyway and getting them to practice isolated skills and instead to focus on understanding ideas from the inside out um, about the need for kids to be collaborating with one another in learning rather than doing things in an isolated fashion or even worse set in competition against one another um, about the importance of having a curriculum that grows from kids own questions about themselves and the world so that kids are helping to literally devise the curriculum we're not just unilaterally imposing it on them um, and there's much more of course so each of those strands that I've just mentioned, along with other aspects of education, could be um, evaluated separately in terms of your question about where we are, where we have to go. Um, in some respects, classrooms have more opportunities for cooperative learning kids in pairs and small groups than they did a generation ago, so that's progress. Um, some of the harsher aspects of kids just reciting or filling out worksheets all day are less prevalent than they once were, although that depends on where you go to school. The worst, most traditional form of, of, uh, of instruction where kids have the least to say about what they're doing and are most focused on test prep takes place um, in inner cities with low-income um, African-American and Latino kids. They get the worst of it, where they're basically treated like pets. Um, uh, but if we go through all those other aspects of schooling, it's, it seems pretty clear that in general, many schools, especially when you get to high school, are really not very different from the way they were a generation or two or three ago, um, where it's still about grades and rubrics and tests and quizzes and homework and lectures and worksheets. Um, and it's a place that's intellectually unengaging. And so we have our work cut out for us now as, as we did before. We have more research now uh, to show the consistent failure of those traditional practices. Not that they're being done wrong, but that they shouldn't be done at all for the most part. 
Um, and we have more pilot programs of remarkable classrooms and schools showing us that it's not only possible, but preferable to do things in a more progressive way. And you know as well as anyone that there are all kinds of uh, ideas floating around out there as to what's going to be the new silver bullet to save education. We're talking about design thinking, deeper learning, competency-based uh, education, all these different things. Uh, at the end of the day, what do we need to be thinking about to create those better schools for kids? Well, we need, we need to be thinking, first of all, about what's the goal of education, before we talk about the methods. You know, whenever a politician or a corporate executive talks about uh, improving our schools, they frame education not as being what's needed to support or create a vibrant democracy or in terms of what's best for the individual children. They see it in economic terms. And worse, they frame it in competitive terms. So it's all about how our kids can triumph over children who live elsewhere. And, and we can go about shouting, you know, we're number one, as if education was just an extended sporting match. Um, moreover, the focus tends to be on preparing uh, students to be um, compliant and productive um, employees when they're, when they're adult. So if that's your goal, if it's all about, about dollars and cents, you know the kind of education is not going to do, do our kids right. It's not going to be in their best interest. So that's where we have to start. What's the point of education? And then after that, we need to be looking critically and be willing to ask the radical questions, you know, and not do we do standards-based grading, you know, but why are we grading at all, given the overwhelming research showing that kids tend to think less deeply and become less interested in learning if their, what, uh, their learning has been uh, reduced to a letter or number? And the same is true for many of these other things. The question is not are we getting too much homework, but why, in light of the research, kids have to work a second shift when they get home from a full day of school at all? The question isn't, do we give fewer tests or different tests, but why are we still giving tests rather than doing authentic, less destructive forms of assessment and so on? Or to take the phrase that you mentioned briefly, um, competency-based learning is an excellent example of giving a new gloss to an old kind of behaviorism, since competence too often is defined as merely the acquisition of a series of isolated facts and skills. You know, now we can use tech height, um, in education, um, which is not particularly innovative. It doesn't get to the core of what the goal is, what the pedagogy is. You know, if we're still stuffing kids full of facts, um, we just are now tracking the success of that process more accurately with cute apps and screens, we haven't made any progress. We've actually gone backward because we're actively distracting our attention from the much more substantive shifts in thinking that we need to do. And in addition to finding your books on your website at uh, alfiecone.org, you can also find a wonderful DVD that I ran across entitled No Grades Plus No Homework, 
equals better learning. And if we could, I'd like to take those one at a time, beginning with the discussion about grades. And you just kind of hit on it that the research yep. says it is a barrier to learning. And uh, I've also heard it described as the path of least resistance. If kids want to play the game of school, they know what they have to do to get a certain letter grade and move on. Oh, yeah, that, absolutely. As the late Ted Sizer used to say, the teacher lays this stuff out. Here's what you do to get a good grade, and the kid does it, and then they wink at each other, and the teacher can pretend that he or she did some real teaching, and the student can pretend that he or she did some real learning, when in fact nothing of intellectual value has taken place there. In addition to the two results, uh, robust results of many studies over the years that I just mentioned real quickly, uh, namely that students who are working to get better grades are less interested in learning and in the particular topic they're learning and tend to think in a more superficial and shallow sense than students lucky enough to go to a school where there are no grades. There's a third effect, according to the research, which is whenever you focus students' attention on grades, they tend to pick the easiest possible task. And, and that's not because they're lazy. That's not because they need to be motivated. It's not because they want to cut corners. It's because they're rational. <laughs> Obviously, if the point is to get an A, you're going to pick the shortest book or the most familiar topic or the easiest project if you have a choice because that maximizes your chance of getting an A. So any use of grades of any kind including numerical scores on rubrics, is dis actively discourages intellectual risk-taking and is completely unnecessary because we have more informative as well as less destructive ways of reporting students' progress. The larger issue, though, is not just limited to grades and rubrics. The larger issue, which I discuss in The Schools Our Children Deserve at, a, at length in the whole chapter, is Whenever we get kids overly focused on how well they're doing in school, that is their achievement level, they tend to become less engaged with what they're learning. So achievement and learning are two completely different goals and ways of focusing attention. Grades is just the most obvious way that we get kids focused on how well with the result that they become less interested in and proficient at the learning itself. Most of the time, students should not have to think about how good they are about what, at what they're doing in school. They have to, occasionally will we'll guide them to do that, to check in. But most of the time, our goal should be to completely put achievement out of their minds. We want them to think about what the author means in this story, not about how good they are at reading and so on for the other disciplines. And, you know, without question, uh, we can agree on the fact that we've created a, a generation of kids that know how to excel in fill, filling out bubble sheets when you talk about standardized testing. So th the question you get all the time, and I apologize for asking it again, but to kind of move this thought process forward, if you're not going to use standardized testing, if you're not going to use traditional grading, then how do you go about measuring student growth and learning in the school system? 
Well, you don't go about measuring it as soon as you framed it in terms of measurement, which means quantifying it, reducing it to numbers, you've lost the battle because most of what's meaningful about learning cannot be reduced to numerical terms without doing violence to that which you are measuring. I mean, it's a hell of a lot easier to accurately measure the number of times a student uses a, a comma correctly in an essay than it is to measure the number of great ideas in the essay. So the more focused you are on data, the more trivial your teaching tends to become. But if you will allow me to offer an amendment to your question and revise it to ask, how can you assess as opposed to measure the quality of teaching and learning. Well, I've got bookshelves full of answers to that. We have an enormous literature on authentic assessment. Part of it depends upon whether you're, why you're assessing. Are we doing it uh, to, to get a sense of the progress of this, of this student or of this particular teacher or of how well a whole school or district is doing? Too often we respond with the same uh, kinds of standardized um, uh, exams, regardless of that, failing to make those distinctions. Um, and that's, that, that's part of what causes our, our problem here and leads us to just respond with tests. If the question is, are students becoming increasingly proficient and deep thinkers um, in a given discipline and at a given age, well, there's many, many ways, performance tasks, exhibitions of mastery, um, as uh, a number of researchers put it, uh, there's uh, ways of collecting meaningful tasks thoughtfully in a portfolio and then reviewing that, all of which can give us information. Now, we can also randomly sample some students. You know, I, I like to talk about um, students' achievements rather than student achievement just by making it plural. You know, you're talking about the meaningful results of learning of real children, whereas when you talk about student achievement, you're just talking about test scores. Um, and there's all sorts of, of ways by which we can get a sense of which schools and which teachers need help without ever giving students a test particularly a standardized test. I mean, you only have to give a standardized test, that is, students of a huge area given the same thing to do under the same conditions, if the question you're trying to answer is not how well are these kids learning, but who's beating whom. The very idea of standardizing is required only if your goal is about sorting kids, teachers, states, into winners and losers. Um, and so that leads in a very different direction. Um, many, there, there's been, I don't know, probably a dozen books in the last 15 years. I, I wrote one of them, but there are many other good ones out there. Not only showing that standardized tests are inherently problematic, not just because of how they're used, but also pointing the, the way toward much better and less destructive alternatives. And I love that answer, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, a lot of times we get so caught up into this idea of making data-driven decisions that we can't see the forest from the trees. 
So there has to be a, a shift in thinking. Again, going back to your original thought is what is education for? What is the purpose? That's absolutely right. I mean, the people who talk most about data-driven education uh, are the folks who know the least about what children need to learn and are the least thoughtful about the kind of learning. Because um, data almost always refers to you know, numerical stuff, and that's, that's problematic. That's not to say we, we shouldn't have evidence of, of learning and that we can't assess both teaching and learning. We can, but we have to do it modestly and qualitatively. And the other piece to this is if I can shift gears and talk about homework a little bit, and you referred to sure. it earlier about the second shift and the idea there is, you know, kids are in school from eight to three. We, we put them through all these uh, worksheets and all this, um, all these tasks that they have to complete. Then they have to come home and do another two or three hours of, of homework, which is tough on families, tough on the kids. And I can't tell you how many times I've had a parent, call me or meet me on the street and say, you know what, I just can't help my kid with this common core math. Homework has to be something that we have to rethink and, and change our mindset on. Yes, I agree with you. And changing the mindset begins by not limiting ourselves to the question of how much homework, because that assumes there has to be some, and that remains to be proved. Even improving the quality of homework may not be enough, um, because it doesn't address the deeper issues of, of whether this is an appropriate thing to do at all, and if so, when, and who says. Um, so, for example, no study, to the best of my knowledge, has ever found any benefit of any kind to any sort of homework before kids are in high school. So if a teacher is assigning homework in let's say grade six or seven, let alone grade one or two, which is, I think, educational malpractice, either that teacher does not know what the research says or doesn't care and thinks that for some reason we should compel kids to do more homework, it's more schoolwork at home, regardless of the fact that there's no evidence for its efficacy and considerable anecdotal evidence of its destructive effects how homework routinely produces frustration, exhaustion, family conflicts, less interest in learning, and less time for kids to develop in other ways, socially, artistically, physically, emotionally, and so on. Um, so it's remarkable when you look at the research. We all know the negative effects of homework, but we take on faith that the pros outweigh the cons. And when you actually look at the research, you know, it's literally all pain and no gain. And that's to say nothing of the value-based objections to homework, which I hear from many parents who say, even if you could show me that it did, you know, improve their skills or something, uh, or their learning, uh, I think six hours of academics a day is enough. Moreover, I think that family time is for families to decide what to do with. What, a, what, what an institutional arrogance that we've come to accept you know, without even thinking about it, that the school has the right to determine what children and to some extent their parents have to do when they're home, you know. So whether you look at it from a value or research-based perspective, whether you look at the disadvantages or the absence of advantages, I mean, there's really just no compelling case, especially for regularly assigned homework. At best, you'd say, all right, on some rare cases, 
when we can really demonstrate that this is going to benefit kids by helping them to think more deeply about questions that matter, as opposed to merely cramming more facts in their head for a test. Um, on those rare occasions, um, and when we meet the criterion that this will likely make kids more excited about what they're learning, then and only then will we presume to infringe on family time by giving kids schoolwork to do at home. But the default, obviously, should be no homework, except on those occasions when we can justify it. And of course, we do, I mean, that sounds to me like, it's, for me, it's almost an uncharacteristically moderate position to say, do it just when it's necessary. The extreme position is to say, we're gonna make you do this stuff at home just about every day. Later, we'll figure out what to make you do. As, as if the, the mere act of doing homework, irrespective of the content, was inherently beneficial, which is a bizarre proposition that could never be uh, supported. And the last piece of this is, uh, if I could take you back into the classroom, uh, what does the yep. research say about classroom management and, and child behavior and how that all relates to, to student success? <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, I wrote a whole book on that, too, and so have many other people. It's hard to summarize that in a minute. Once again, at the risk of, of, of repeating myself, it all depends on what your goal is. Most of the, the um, books on classroom management say that certain techniques are more effective. You know, like uh, having the, the, the teacher set out clear rules and expectations and so on and being having an eyes in the back of her head to see what's going on, to, et cetera, et cetera. But what people rarely stop to ask is, what do you mean by effective? Effective at what? It's not a coincidence that most teachers in pre-service take a, take a course called methods, but very rarely one in goals. And it turns out that all those claims and some scattered research studies on classroom management assume, usually tacitly, that effective classroom management means compliance. It means mindless obedience on the part of the students. If our goal is somewhat more ambitious than that, if we'd like students to become independent thinkers and questioners, if we'd like them to become caring and compassionate people who are concerned about the well-being of the kids around them, then nothing resembling traditional classroom management will ever uh, move us one millimeter toward that goal. It will actively undermine that, in fact. So I'm more interested not in talking about classroom management at all, but in talking instead about how do we create caring, effective classroom communities. And that begins by getting rid of anything that looks like competition that makes kids want to defeat each other and actively promoting in its place um, collaboration and community. And it also means bringing kids in on the process. The best teachers talk less and ask more. They have democratic class meetings with their kids where together we come up with not a list of very specific behaviors that we are good or bad, but how we want our classroom to be, broader concerns about, about 
learning about how we're going to live together and how we're going to solve problems so kids develop intellectually as well as socially and morally by constructing a set of expectations based on our own goals and then revisiting that periodically. And of course, it's easy to say that in a few minutes. It takes a long time to get really good at that if you're a teacher. But it starts with the teacher minimizing his or her own power or control over students and figuring out how to empower the kids. Because kids learn to make good decisions by making decisions, not by following directions. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, your body of work in the field of education has made a tremendous impact for all of us that are either in the classroom as a teacher or in a school leadership role. So uh, really value your opinion and your time today. And as we close, we have a lot of principals, superintendents, teachers listen to the podcast. And if they're wanting to rethink what they're doing in their classroom or their school, can you just give them a quick closing thought or maybe some words of encouragement as we think about making schools better? Um, if you want to do what's really right by kids, you have to be a rebel. You cannot take moronic mandates from on high and ask, how do we implement this? You will have to ask at some point, how do we actively subvert those demands um, so that we can work together to do what's in the kids' best interest in terms of our long-term goals for the kind of kids. If you are not pushing back on standardized expectations and the pressure to raise test scores, if you are not pushing back on worksheets and grades and homework and tests and so on, um, and expectations of compliance as the goal of well-behaved drones, then you're not doing your job as an educator. But if you are, and if you're willing to take those risks and to do so collaboratively to organize opposition to the status quo, then you can do, you can make a difference for an enormous number of kids for their whole lives. Well, it's been wonderful to talk with you. Folks, be sure to follow uh, Alfie Cohn on Twitter. Also go to the website, alfiecohn.org. And uh, I can't thank you enough for being here. And I can, will look forward to more of your research, more of your books, more of your writing. And uh, just can't thank you enough for being here. So with that, folks, we're going to wrap thank up you. this edition of the Reimagined School Podcast. And as always, folks, do what you can in your school community to create better schools for kids. Thank you for listening to the Reimagined Schools podcast with Dr. Greg Goins. Be sure to continue the conversation on social media with the Reimagined Schools hashtag and subscribe to the podcast at reimaginedschools.net. You can also help support this podcast by clicking on the listener support link and making a small monthly contribution. Contact Dr. Greg Goins today to invite him to speak or present at your next education conference or professional development day. Please send inquiries to drgreggoins at gmail.com or on Twitter at drgreggoins.